Hello, and welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis of China's growing presence in the developing world. I'm your host, Eric Maestrino, coming to you today from beautiful Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Before we start our conversation today, I'd like to remind our listeners that we update our Twitter and Facebook profiles daily with all the important stories relating to the Belt and Road, and also some of the more academic literature and off-the-beaten-path stories that you won't find in the New York Times. Uh, the handle is at Belt and Road Pod. So I want to thank all of you who have been listening and all of who follow us on the social media. I mean, this has been a project, it's a hobby of mine that's allowed me to explore this topic that I'm most interested in uh, with some of the most brightest young scholars in the field. And it's been an honor to go from zero to close to 500 real followers in four months. So thank you all for following. I'm really happy to be bringing you more episodes coming throughout the year. And speaking of impressive young academics who study the Belt and Road, today we have a special guest. Charles Stevens. Charles Stevens is an undergraduate student studying history at the University of St. Andrews. He has a particular interest in the philosophical underpinnings and trade aspects of China's Belt and Road Initiative. In 2017, he created with the team the New Silk Road Project. Uh, it's an expedition that was supported by Jeep and the University of St. Andrews to document the land-based component of the Belt and Road Initiative by compiling interviews from leading actors and academics across Europe and Asia, where he spanned, drove a Jeep for 10,000 miles all across the Belt and Road, uh, as we'll get into here in a bit. He's working on building an interactive map to address the deficit in cross-regional academic communications, and he's been written about his journeys for U.S.-China Focus, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, I had the honor to watch him speak yesterday at Duke University and needed to grab the opportunity to bring him on the show today. Charles, welcome to the Belt and Road podcast. Thanks very much, Eric. First, so your story is amazing. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the idea for the trip? How did that begin? And how did you put it all together? Sure, great question. So I was very lucky during my gap year to be able to cycle across Asia. Uh, we went from Beijing to Tehran in 2016. And one of the things I observed during this was the development of critical infrastructure by Chinese actors. So for example, in Kazakhstan or also in Kyrgyzstan, we saw the development of the Narin Bishkek Road which was being built by Sino Hydro from 2013 to 2016. And this really lit a fire in me that any foreign external actor building critical infrastructure in other geographies is important. And since then, I've been learning about the Belt and Road, trying to understand it, and eventually set up the New Silk Road project, which allowed me to explore it in more detail alongside my studies. And so tell us, what was the journey? Sure. So as you said, we traveled 10,000 miles across Europe and Asia in a Jeep, which kindly supported the trip. Our main aim was to document the opportunities and challenges of the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as the emergence of the economic corridors by visiting the critical infrastructure hubs along the way. We went from London to Yiwu, which parallels the route of the Yiwu to London freight train, which made the journey in January 2017. And we went to hubs such as Rotterdam, Mala, which is on the Polish-Belarus border, Piraeus, Kumport, Anakilia, and then across towards Horgos into China. Throughout this journey, what were kind of your objectives? Who were you wanting to speak to? Who were you able to speak to? Sure, great question. So we spoke in total to about 40 actors and academics. So this ranged from aligned academics working on the subjects of individual infrastructure hubs. So we spoke to a man called Plamev Tonchev, who runs a think tank in Athens, Greece, looking at Piraeus Port. We would speak to corporate strategists, such as Mikhail Nizdam, who's the corporate strategist at Rotterdam. Uh, we had the opportunity to speak to 
people like Wan Shanshin, who's the CEO of Hualing Group in Georgia, which is the largest direct foreign investor in the country, as well as engaging with freight forwarders such as DHL and logistics companies who are using the Belt and Road to forward transportation networks. So I guess our specific focus in terms of what is a, a very broad agenda with the Belt and Road was the emergence of economic corridors and looking at the development of transportation links across these routes, um, mainly in the form of freightage by rail. Was there any kind of uh, consensus or generalizable uh, thoughts that you could have based upon um, whether they be academics or people who were within uh, ship- shipping or within different industries in which they re- uh, related to the Belt and Road? Does everyone kind of have different uh, viewpoints on it or are they even skeptical or understand what it is at all? Great question. As as I'm sure you know as well as anyone, the Belt and Road is an incredibly broad agenda. It encompasses two thirds of the world's the world's landmass and, and and livable area, one third of the global population, one third of the global GDP. So it's a very very broad project. And due to this, you have to break it down from it on a project to project level. You have to separate the grand vision of the Belt and Road from its local implementation. So. I could comment on individual projects that we saw, and I could probably generalize towards regions, but consensus in terms of the project itself is very, very difficult because the way it's implemented on the local level varies greatly. So, for example, there will be much higher transparency and labor standards with the construction of something like the Pelgesite Bridge in Croatia, whereas projects in East Africa will have both lower transparency and labor standards. So how many projects were you actually able to go see? Like how many ports were you able to go into or industrial zones were you able to go into or have access to or have access to people who were either working on it if they were being developed or how many of the roads were built by Chinese actors did you traverse? So I would break down the sites we saw into two components. It would be those that were directly related to the Belt and Road Initiative through Chinese actors or Chinese commercial or policy bank financing. Piraeus would be an example. Anaclia in Georgia would be another example. One of the four banks involved with that is AIIB, as well as sites like Horgos Gateway, which has become the poster boy for the Belt and Road Initiative. On the other side, and this made up a large proportion of the sites, were those projects that have such as Azaiport in um, just outside Istanbul or sites like Rotterdam or Malo on the Polish-Belarus border, which don't have any direct involvement in terms of financing or Chinese actors, but are using the enthusiasm from the Belt and Road Initiative to both forward transportation networks and to forward their agenda. So for example, the Euromax terminal in Rotterdam has been purchased by Chinese actors. So they are using Rotterdam to uh, forward their commercial reach. And Maller, of course, is helping to ship freight overland via the the Europe-China trains that we hear a lot about in the media. So again, the Belt and Road is primarily about infrastructure integration, the building of ports, railways, pipelines, power grids across external geographies, mainly in the Afro-Eurasia region. But it's not just limited to that. Yeah. And speaking specifically about uh, these infrastructures, you know, oftentimes when us academics or whomever who aren't lucky enough to be able to travel across these spans of geography, we, we, we think about them as a form of either soft power, a form of economic development or otherwise. But just anecdotally from what you were able to see, the roads you were able to go mm. on, which you knew were either Chinese finance or had some Chinese construction firms who were building it or, or the ports. One, 
just how was the quality to was there any kind of problems or situations in terms of the demand for them actually in terms of either were the cargo trains actually full were mm-hmm. there enough service stations along the way to actually supply an economic corridor to exist here or just give us more anecdotal details about some of these roads and ports that you and railways that you saw so i think a really good place to start there would be Perez, which has become one of the real success stories of the belt and road initiative It was purchased by Costco Pacific several years ago and has risen in its TU throughput to become one of the most important freight hubs in Europe and also in the world. So I think now it's in terms of TU throughput, that's an inexact measurement of the number of containers which go through the port. It's in the top 20 ports in the world. Only five years ago, it was way above 50. So the speed of development has been dramatic. Um, There they are looking at turning Piraeus into a hub for shipbuilding and um, ship restoration. They're looking at turning it into a real cruise terminal and cruise center. And these actually align with some of the strategic uh, priorities which China Standing Committee um, and some of the ministries in Beijing have outlined as really important to the Belt and Road Initiative. So we see enshrined in Piraeus some of the some of the key priorities of the Belt and Road Initiative. And of course, we have to look at sites as like Piraeus, not just in isolation, but part of a network, of course, private SOEs, and also the government is much, much close, closely linked than it is in Europe. And as a result of this, there's much closer coordination between the different companies. So Piraeus is actually functioning at the centre of an expanding nexus where we see Kumport, a port just outside Istanbul, which has had a 49% stake purchased by Chinese actors. We're seeing the development of the Belgrade-Budapest Railway, which will eventually, when this portion from Athens to Belgrade is built, will help to deliver commerce up into the CEE, the Central and Eastern Europe region. And this is in a different service area from Rotterdam. So it's actually been very strategically positioned. That's that's a very good example. In terms of your other question about roads, there's been a lot of a lot of debate about the Belt and Road Initiative, and, and rightly so, but I think it's also very easy to forget that in a lot of these developing countries and, and low-income regions, having a efficient and well-built road makes a huge difference to the livelihoods of people. I remember when I cycled some of these roads in 2016, although I was in a completely different mode of transport, we saw the trucks and the and the cars come by and at some points they were not much quicker than us because the roads are of such poor quality we were doing we went along a road from almaty to horgos on the chinese kazakh border we were told by the locals that five years ago before the road was built that would take seven hours to travel it took us about three so in terms of accessing new markets and increasing productivity and efficiency, these roads are important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there is this giant infrastructure gap that exists throughout the developing world. And one of the more positive aspects, if done well, is ability for Chinese financing and the expertise Chinese uh, SOEs and engineers have of flushing out this on time and sometimes under budget uh, can be a huge boon to these countries. I guess I was just thinking more of Sometimes with the implementation of it or where it was placed or how it was placed, you know, sometimes that has to do with internal political economies or internal uh, practices where uh, um, some local elite wants this road to be built here, even though that might not be the most efficient place. And so did you see any kind of a more white elephant projects or more so? Um, yeah, I'll leave the question at that first. Sure. Um, 
No, we didn't. But something that I could tell you, which which would be of interest, is the way that we cannot neglect other actors in the development of Asian infrastructure. As you've mentioned, the the annual infrastructure gap in Asia is huge. And the, one of the aims of the Belt and Road Initiative is to try and plug this gap. One of the roads we travel along the China, Central Asia, West Asia economic corridor, which has been dubbed as one of the main economic corridors of the Belt and Road Initiative, was actually a road developed by the Asian Development Bank from Aktobe to Makat in Western Kazakhstan. And this came as a surprise to me because the Belt and Road Initiative is, of course, at the forefront of international discussion in in, in, in mainstream media and also political debate. And to travel along a road through through this this corridor which has been dubbed by China of course as part of the Belt and Road was was in some ways counterintuitive and just because China has decided that this region is called the an economic corridor its economic belt does not of course mean that it has a monopoly on the development on there and I think that's something important to remember in the Netherlands for example we were at the Kligendale Institute which is one of the major think tanks there we had a great chat with uh, Franz Paul van der Putten and he made a similar point that people are talking a lot about China in the Netherlands for a variety of reasons. One, because it's a small country and investment from a large partner could have a big impact, but also in terms of its focus on dredging and shipbuildings, which are strategic industries that China wants to get involved with. But there he said that Chinese FDI, direct foreign investment, only makes up a very, very small fraction of total investment in the, in the Netherlands. Um, and it's very important to remember that the EU, in that region at least, is still the main player. Yeah, and kind of bouncing off this idea of the importance of local actors within mm. the Belt and Road, I remember from your presentation yesterday, you spoke of a few examples as to how external actors were internalizing Belt and Road, either thought of Belt and Road vocabulary, the mm. Belt and Road as an idea, and trying to utilize it for their own uh, either political or uh, local economic gains. Can you talk about some of those projects in which you saw? In which it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily even a Chinese finance project, or it wasn't necessarily... Um, no, I, I can, I can yeah, answer that yeah. for you. So, so for example, let, let, let's take the example of the new port of Baku at Ailat, which is a really exciting new development just outside Baku, which is the capital of Azerbaijan, on the western side of the Caspian Sea. This project actually has no relation to China's Belt and Road, or even China for that matter. But a lot of the discussion and rhetoric we heard there when we were speaking to um, some of the managers and, and, and directors of this project was that they were not directly participating in the Belt and Road, but they were aligned with its agenda. What that means, at least to me, is that they're using the Belt and Road Initiative to forward transportation networks. They understand that the Belt and Road is something which, in some capacity, is looking to bring greater connectivity to Europe and Asia, and they want to plug into this in order to forward their agenda. We saw the same at a site called Samsung Logistics Center, which is near Trabzon, um, and well, near Trabzon and Samsung on the coast of the Black Sea in Turkey. And there, they, they gave us a presentation. This, this port, this, uh, sorry, this logistics site was just about to be opened. And there again, their discussion was much, was a lot to do with the Belt and Road. This is even though that not, as far as I'm aware, not, no freight from China, overland freight comes through the South Caucasus region and and Turkey yet it is all still going via the new the new Eurasian land bridge up from commercial centers in China such as the 
the uh, Hubei and the industrial complexes up there, or Chongqing, where they're starting to manufacture robotics, or to places like Yiwu, which is becoming an important e-commerce center, and then going via Kazakhstan up through the Eurasian Economic Union, which have free trade agreements into Russia and Belarus. So to sort of bring that all together, everyone's keen to get a piece of the pie in the way that they can. And companies like DHL or other projects for other countries are keen to capitalize on this. I also remember uh, from your presentation yesterday, you spoke some about uh, real estate that was being built along these corridors from uh, Chinese actors. Can you just go into a little bit of what these projects were? Do you know anything about uh, who these Chinese firms were? What type, what were the, what was the real estate being built? Was it being lived in already? So my knowledge of specific real estate projects is more limited. But what I can say is that there's a big difference between a transportation corridor, which is a corridor which has the capacity to move people, commerce, goods and and everything aligned with that from region to region and an economic corridor which is a road which has developed infrastructure and and services along it. So at the moment along these corridors, particularly in Kazakhstan and the China, Central Asia, West Asia corridor that I highlighted, it is still very much in the embryonic stages of being a transport corridor. There is very, very little along some of these roads built by either China, in the case of Almaty to Horgos, or the new road which is being developed at the moment from Makat to Almaty, which, which provides any added value. Very few trucks and vehicles move along it at the moment, and most of them are going up via a road built from western China all the way to western Europe, which goes up through through Kazakhstan, which Wade Shepard did a great article about in, in, in Forbes. A project which, an individual project I can highlight for you is the Tbilisi Sea New City in Georgia. And this is a really, really interesting project. Hualing Group Georgia, which is a Xinjiang-based company, it's now one of the biggest investors in Georgia. In fact, it is the largest foreign investor in Georgia, has built this new city there. And it very much is China in Georgia. For example, it encompasses gated communities. As far as I'm aware, these are some of the few gated communities in Georgia. It's not a it's not a Georgian sort of cultural practice. The deal was with the government that they would develop the site for the Youth Olympics, which took place several years earlier. In return, they would then be able to sell off the property and also develop a larger area. Was it being lived in already? Good question. So there was definitely tenants moving in and there was tenancy. There are still very, very... So we, we sat on the top floor of a, of a hotel with the CEO, uh, Mr. Mr. Shankson, and he surveyed his hand over the area of, of, of this new city when I asked him about future development. And, and it didn't take me long to realize that all the green surrounding the site was to be buildings in the future. So yes, there is tendency, but their plans for expansion are, are ambitious. As, as often Chinese businessmen are. It's also, I, I just brought up the real estate thing because I'm very fascinated by real estate development coming from China because of the way it's stylized, I saw the photo that you showed yesterday, and it just looked exactly like any type of new development that's happening within China, with the same type of cookie-cutter, six-story building over and over again with the gated community, which is exactly like so many neighborhoods in China. And it looked very much similar to the new city that they built outside of uh, um, the capital of Angola and um, a few other places. So that whole lived-in space and how uh, I've heard other things where they build it with like a Chinese style kitchen, which doesn't necessarily, uh, anyway, I'm going on a tangent, but 
Interesting. I, I think I think you're right there in terms of in terms of the importance of real estate investment. Like where I'm from in London, I mean the the levels of Chinese investment in real estate have been pretty significant. And also in Athens, two of the things that have followed Chinese or Costco's investment in the Port of Piraeus have been investment also in telecommunications and real estate in Greece. And these are high value sort of sectors which. China can make money from and they're keen to get involved in. And so generally, what are three main takeaways that you'd want people who are curious about the Belt and Road Initiative or um, how people should maybe think about it or research the, the Belt and Road Initiative going forward from your travels and from seeing many of the projects firsthand? Well, I think firstly, a distinction, and I think this is absolutely vital, a distinction has to be made between the grand vision of the Belt and Road Initiative from what's said during Belt and Road Forums or during the 19th Party Congress or in white papers, also given out by SOEs or or other actors in China, of course, we have to break down what China is as an entity. And that's that's a really important thing. So is this a decision made on a Beijing level or a prefectural, subprefectural or local level? So I think there needs to be a big distinction between the grand vision of the Belt and Road from China and the implementation on the local level. That would be the first thing. So if you want to understand the Belt and Road Initiative, look at individual projects and extrapolate from there. The second thing is, is that it's not much older than five years now. And this is a project with a timeline that is expected to stretch to 2049 or potentially longer. So we're still seeing it in its infancy, in its embryonic stages. And these so-called economic corridors, in many cases, including the corridor we traveled, the China, Central Asia, West Asia corridor, is at best a formative transport corridor, which is very different from an economic corridor. The third thing I would highlight is that the corridor we travelled was probably one of the less good examples of Chinese development. The amount of money it has invested in these regions is a fraction of what it's invested along the CPEC corridor going from Gwadia to Kashgai. From the last time I looked, I think it's close to 60 billion. It changes a little bit, it may be more, it may be less. This is, I think, in many ways... A much better example of BRI, one, because it's through a single country. And of course, investing in a single country is easier because the administration, the rules, the way one can engage in a country is 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 standardized. When you're looking across across countries, things become more complicated with trade and things. Um, also, the way that it's been pumping money into this region with the development of roads, the free trade zone and the port at Guadeo and also fiber optic cables stretching up through contested regions um, between India and Pakistan is it, it shows pretty substantial development not just in the physical Silk Road but also the digital Silk Road. Great those are all wonderful tips for all of us. Just generally what's what's next for you what's next for the project and if so if it's possible how can our listeners get involved if they'd like to? Well I'm still a penultimate year undergraduate student at St Andrews so I've got to go back and do some work. But that's a good question. So I'm keen with my colleagues and my friends to continue on the interview series. Um, but also something we identified was a real deficit in region-to-region communication between academics on the Belt and Road Initiative. And this puzzled me because it's a global initiative. And of course, academics often have a regional focus or, or a speciality at least. It seemed to me difficult that there's certainly stuff to be gained from commute from people from Europe communicating with actors or academics in the South Caucasus or in Kazakhstan. And we met very, very intelligent, knowledgeable people throughout. 
And the hope is to create an interactive map to help essentially create a community to link up on these different thinkers in the subject and, and to help to add value to, to what is, whether it's a success or failure, a very important initiative. So we're trying to take, create a network of all the academics who work within um, either specific industries that would be related to the Belt and Road or specific countries or specific regions that relate to it. So then uh, it makes it easier for people to access other uh, specialists who study the Belt and Road, correct? If, yes, if I may just clarify on that, mm. the, this idea of an interactive map was actually something I was discussing with some of the students at Duke last night. Um, it's, it's something that we're, we're still thinking about the best way to go about. So if any of your listeners have suggestions or advice, I'm very, very keen to hear. But at least the initial idea is to try and keep it focused on academics. It's a very big initiative. It's, there's a lot of people involved and it would be very, very easy for this to become an, an overwhelming task. Absolutely. And if, if somebody wants to follow more about either your writings or the New Silk Road project, how can they find you online? The best way to do that would be through our website, thenewsilkroadproject.com. And through that, there's links to our blog, our YouTube channel, our Twitter feed, as well as photos and more general information about our project. Great. Well, thank you so much, Charles. Um, now I want to move on to recommendations. And so do you have a recommendation for us? This is going to be a, a reading, an article, a book, or a movie. It has, can be related to the Belt and Road Initiative or not uh, that you've re- read recently that you think would give people greater insights. Sure. Well, I think there's a very th- fine line between China's foreign policy and China's Belt and Road Initiative. Something that I've enjoyed recently has been China Steps Out, Beijing's major power engagement with the developing world, which has been edited by Eric Hagenbotham. If listeners are interested in something a little bit lighter, Peter Frankopan's The New Silk Roads is a very good overarching look, both at the Belt and Road Initiative, but also other issues related to foreign policy. I'll put those on my reading list for sure. And for my recommendation, uh, it'll be anything that Hannah Ryder writes. Uh, Hannah Ryder is, um, she runs actually the, or she's the CEO of the first wholly owned Kenyan firm in China called Development Reimagined. It's a development consultancy based in Beijing. And she just specifically, she wrote a blog piece, a very short blog piece yesterday called My New Year's Resolution, Why I'm Banning the West in My Vocabulary. It goes into difficulties in the, in the backgrounds of the West and why she's trying to take it out of her vocabulary. But she also has important, basically what I claim is Belt and Road 101, uh, how we should never say China is doing this, uh, making it how there's so many different Chinese actors and we try to do this in this podcast as to always differentiate uh, who we're talking about, whether it be the Chinese state, whether it be Beijing, maybe prefectural, provincial, whether it be a Chinese SOE, what level of SOE, whether it be a private firm or just migrants, because it's just so important to get that nuance, not mesh everything into a China. So, uh, but everything she writes in her blog and the development reimagined website is great and follow her on Twitter as well. So anything written by Hannah Ryder. Again, Charles, thank you so much for, for coming on to the show today. Uh, we, I loved having you. Thanks, Eric. This has been the Belt and Road podcast. Again, follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Belt and Road Pod and have a great day. Mm-hmm.